The book of Romans is just, it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's an incredible, credible letter from the Apostle Paul as we've been studying. Realize that Martin Luther called Romans the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel is what he said, which is well worthy and deserving that every Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of his soul. So your assignment for next week is to memorize the book of Romans. And pastor will be testing, you know, but Martin Luther, obviously this letter influenced him greatly as he moved into the Reformation and so many things happened through the Reformation that have influenced Christian life and Christian worship. But that was what he said about Romans. Think about this. The Roman Empire at this time spread all the way from the Near East and Asia Minor, parts of Northern Africa, almost all of Europe and Western Europe and into the British Isles. Matter of fact, my wife and I were in the British Isles last summer, thanks to you and your wonderful gift to us, and we went to the city of Chester in England, and that city was built by the Romans in the first century about the time this book was being written. And it was incredible to think about, we're standing in a city that has been there that long, and this great empire that was so powerful, and the key city of that empire is Rome a city that at that time is estimated to probably have 750,000 to a million people in it. It was called the city of the world by some. That saying, all roads lead to Rome, was actually true. And all roads led from Rome, too. So in this city, this church has blossomed. And think about this. At this point, no apostle of Jesus has ever visited the city of Rome. Peter hasn't been there, and certainly Paul hasn't been there by his own testimony. So this church, made up of mostly Gentiles, but also Jews who have trusted and begun to follow Jesus, is beginning to grow in the city of Rome. Paul wants to go there. He actually says, I'm going to be going to Spain. I'm going to take my ministry west, and I'm planning on visiting you and encouraging you on the way. But before he does, he wants to write this letter. And what's interesting thing, what's interesting about this letter is that it, many of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, he's writing to churches who are dealing with issues. Either they're fighting among themselves or there's sin in the church that he's trying to help them deal with, or there are false teachers, Gnostics, Judaizers who are trying to water down the gospel and change the message of the gospel. And he writes to them to encourage them and give them instruction. But in this letter, there doesn't seem to be any of that kind of thing going on. And what Paul is doing, and I love what he does, he decides what he needs to do for this church, knowing that they're going to face those kinds of things more than likely if they're not already facing them, he begins to write and builds, as only he can do, an incredible systematic argument, his personal systematic theology that he's writing to Rome. It's incredible when you think about it. Now, I'm a linear thinker, and some of you aren't, but I like, okay, here goes to here, goes to here, and when things aren't linear, I get all messed up. 
But what I love about Romans is Paul is very linear, in a very linear way, writing this theology. He's telling the story. And he kind of introduces himself, and then very early in chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17, he introduces the theme for the whole letter, and that theme is, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek also, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's the theme that we, the just, the righteous, will live by faith. And then Paul begins for the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and actually into chapter 3 to build his case. Now remember, God is almighty and holy and righteous. He's made that clear. God is righteous and holy and cannot abide sin. Within the character of God, He cannot abide sin. Sin must be punished. And that punishment for sin is death, separation from him. So that being the case, that we have this righteous God that we worship, and the just are going to have to live by faith in that righteous God, then he begins to build this case. And in chapter 1, he's speaking mostly to the Gentiles at this point, but from verse 14 of chapter 1 through, actually verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 32, he begins to list the sins of the Gentiles, those who are without God. And listen to how he does it, because it's interesting to me. Between verses 18 and 32, as he demonstrates about God's wrath towards sin, and the unrighteousness and ungodliness of the Gentiles, he uses the word they, their, or them, derivation of that pronoun, in those 14 verses or so, he uses that derivation of the pronoun 25 times. So what he's saying is, hey, they've messed up. They are really unrighteous. They are really sinful. And this is what he says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You get the picture? Man, they are messed up. As our pastor would say, they are jacked up. They Yeah, man, he makes it very clear. That's what the Gentiles live in. But then it's almost like as he moves to chapter 2, he thinks, you know, the people are going to be reading this. They're going to be Gentiles, obviously, who've never come under the law and they've not been circumcised. They're not Jews. But there are going to be those who are Jews and probably some who aren't Jews who consider themselves very moral people, very good people. And 
I'm going to be writing this first part of the letter. It's like he's thinking, but they're going to look at that and say, man, they are really messed up. So in chapter 2, he does something very interesting. Right off the bat, he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And then he goes on, as he goes on into the chapter, he actually then begins to call out the Jew. He doesn't mention the Jews at this first part of the, of the chapter. It's probably who he's talking to. But then as he gets into the later part of chapter 2, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and most of us say, that's me. That's who I am. And then he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, you steal. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So get this. In this chapter, between verse, in chapter 2, ver, between verses 1 and 5, he uses you or your 14 times. Between verses 17 and 29, he uses you or your 20 times. So get the picture. They are sinners. You are a sinner. You see where Paul's going? So then he gets into chapter 3, where we're going to start today. And this is all pretty, yeah, it's pretty dark, isn't it? Golly, man, everybody's jacked up, except me. And if I keep hanging around with these people, I'm going to get jacked up too. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, he says at the end of chapter 2. And then he says, he begins to anticipate the arguments. In matter of fact, Paul has probably faced these arguments in his ministry already, probably everywhere he goes, as he's presenting the mess message of the depravity of God, the sinfulness of man, I mean the dep depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, and the righteousness of God, excuse me. You see, since Adam sinned, there is no one who's been born and lived who's not a sinner. That's the price of the first Adam's sin. So he's facing this argument. Then what advantage, this is in chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Can you just see? Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I've been raised a Jew. I've been raised under the law. I know the law. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law better than anybody. But he's going to hear these arguments. And what, I've studied the law. I know the law. I live according to the law. I've been circumcised just like the Old Testament God commanded us to do. Is there no advantage to that? 
And he says, well, much, yes, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are, are judged. So what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture to those who would say, does it do any good? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? He would say yes, because remember, God entrusted the chosen people, the Jews, through Abraham. He entrusted them. He made a covenant with that people. Through Moses, he brought the law to them, and they've been entrusted with the law, the keepers of the law, and God has made promises to you as a nation, as a people, that he will always be faithful to keep. And we need to know that, by the way, today. The promises God has made to the Jews, he will always be faithful to. So there is an advantage to being a Jew because you should know the law. You are keepers of the law. But there's an accountability if you're Jewish that goes along with that is what he's getting ready to say. The next argument, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? See where he's going? I, I speak, of course, in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation would be just if we were saying that. Paul has actually been charged, obviously, with saying, look, your unrighteousness makes God look good because he is righteous. And when you line yourself up and who you are in your sinful nature next to the righteousness of God, he looks good. So why would he condemn me? Why should I be condemned for being unrighteous? And Paul says, because God's character won't allow him to abide your unrighteousness. It's because of his holiness and his heart and his goodness and all of the attributes of God that he can't abide your sin. Well, wait a minute. If my lie, if my sin makes God look good, then why don't we sin more? Because it makes him look good. And by the way, isn't that what you've been teaching people to do, Paul? And Paul is saying, no, no. So he's, he's listening to these arguments or anticipating these arguments that have come to him and that will come to him saying, is there an advantage to being a Jew? And why should we be treated like sinners if we're Jews and if we just make God look better when we sin? And then as he gets to verse 9 in chapter 3, I, I kind of look at this like if he was presenting a case in court, this is his closing argument because he's about to change directions in just a few moments. Hang in there because you're going to love the direction he goes. But he says this in verse 9 and following. What then? Are, by the way, notice he says we Jews because he is a Jew. Are we Jews any better off? Remember, he said there's an advantage to being a Jew because you've been given the law and God's made promises to you. But now the question is, are we better off when it comes to our relationship with God and our unrighteousness? And the answer is, no, 
Not at all. For we have already charged, and that's a word, underline that word, we have already charged that all, both Greeks and, and Jews, are under sin, as it is written. And then in this next passage, these next verses, he quotes from the law, from the Old Testament, Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, Psalm 36, Psalm 140, out of Proverbs and out of Isaiah 59. That's where this next part of the scripture comes from. For the Jews to see, this is what the law says. And listen to what it says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before our eyes, their eyes. So, very quickly, Paul looks at you and me. He looks at them, but he's looking at you and me. And he says, I have 12 charges. There are 12 charges that God has brought against you and me. Number one, there is none who is righteous, not one. Charge number two, we do not get it. We are not who we want to be, and we're not who we should be in God's sight. Charge number three, no one, no one seeks after God. No one. Charge number four, everyone has veered from the way that is right. Charge number five, everyone is corrupt. He's talking about the core, the essence of us as men, the nature. Every one of us is corrupt. And it's the language he uses, it's like fruit that's gone bad and gotten rotten. Number six, charge number six, no one is good. And let me just say this, because we live at a time in our culture when there is this stream of thought that, you know, most of us are pretty good. Most of us are good people. We just mess up once in a while. And if you're a young person in here, you are hearing that everywhere. You're a good person. You just mess up once in a while. You need some help. Well, here's what you need to understand. There is no one who is good in God's eyes. Going back to the sin of Adam, when Adam sinned, that sin has influenced and corrupted every man and woman since that time. No one. It's called the depravity of man, and people don't like to think about it. They don't like to talk about it, and some people argue it's not true. But the Scripture says there is no one who is good and then he goes on with charge number seven. Everyone is rotten. We smell of death in the grave. Everyone deceives is number eight and destroys with their tongue. Everyone, number nine, is vile and profane. Everyone, number 10, runs to evil and destruction. Number 11, no one knows the way of peace. And number 12, no one fears almighty God. And those 12 charges have been brought by the word against you and against me. And the word no one means everyone, you included. There is no one who, who can claim that those don't apply to them. Wow. Well, John, looks like it's hell and brimstone. 
What are we going to do? This is all bad news. This is dark. This is darkness. This is like walking in the night, right? And he says at the end of chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every may be stopped, every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Everybody's under the law. The, The law condemns us all. He goes on to say, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, when the law was given, what the law did was shine the light on the fact that we are sinners. And that no one is without sin. And everybody is under that law. And no one who is under the law will be made righteous by the law. So here's the good news. And I hope you see this as good news. Because so far, it's been pretty tough. Paul's about to move us from darkness into daylight. He says in chapter two, chapter three, verse twenty-one. But now, underline those words, circle those words, because they are the beginning of good news. But now, listen. Wherever you've been, whatever you've experienced, whatever your life is like, however messed up things are, however jacked up things are. But now, Paul is saying there's something you need to know now that's the truth now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Listen to that. You can't be justified under the law, but the righteousness of God now has been manifested, has been made known apart from the law. Although the law... And the prophets bear witness to it. If you study the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the law and the prophets are saying, there will come a time. There will come a Messiah. There will come a day. We promise. God has promised. And he says, but now. That time has come. But now. And listen to what he says. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the but now news. There is righteousness that can be found in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. For there is no distinction. In case we didn't realize this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In case you didn't get it yet. In case you think you're not a they you're not a them, you're not a you, you're an all. All have sinned. And by the way, it's present tense. So what it's saying is all continue to sin and are continuing to fall short of the glory of God. That's what the word is saying there. So it's not like, well, you messed up once. It's like, this is your life, bro. You're sinning all the time and falling short of the glory of God all the time. You're messing up. But now... In Jesus Christ, there's an answer. Thank you. Thank you. Who said that? Somebody said amen. God bless you. Man, and listen to this now. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, let's break that down because, man, you kind of go, whoa, I guess it's good news, but I don't get it, really. In the but now of chapter 3, there are several things that Paul talks to you. But now, in verse 22, by faith, I am made righteous in Jesus Christ. See, God is righteous and holy. He can't abide unrighteousness. So the only way we can have a relationship with God is if he sees us as righteous. And it says, by faith now, I can be made righteous in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about why and how in just a moment. And by the way, there's a a word that's thrown around that's a church word that says that's imputed righteousness. But what it basically means is when Jesus died on the cross, God said, I'm going to transfer my perfect son's righteousness to you when you follow him. He transfers it to you and me as we follow him. And he says, I am going to look at you now and instead of seeing your unrighteousness, righteousness, Beth, I'm going to see the righteousness of Jesus in you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And by faith, when you trust him, that's what you get, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yes, yeah. Secondly, in verse 24, but now, by grace, I am justified in Jesus Christ. And, and, The imputed righteousness of Christ and justification are very close. When I was a young believer, somebody said, I I was saying, man, you're throwing out words like propitiation and justification and sanctification. And somebody said, well, think of justification like this. Being justified is just as if you'd never sinned. I thought, that's good. I can remember that. God now looks at me just as if I never sinned. And here's... That's a a good way to remember what being justified means because my sin condemns me, right? But now I can be looked at by God through Jesus Christ just as if I'd never sinned. But here's the problem with that definition. I have sinned and you have sinned. So yeah, I can pretend like I've never sinned and that's how God sees me, but here's how much the great God that we sang about today loves you. He knows you've sinned. He knows I've sinned. He knows that you're no good. You're jacked up. But he says, I now am clothing you in the righteousness of my son. And when I look at you, you are totally justified because of the righteousness that I am putting around you like clothing and like robes that Jesus has. Paid the price for you. What a great word. I am justified in Jesus Christ because of my faith in him. And because of the grace of God, by the way, it's a gift that nobody deserves and he gives it to us as a gift when we trust him. And then in the next verse, but now I am redeemed by Jesus Christ. I have redemption from Jesus Christ. And that simply means this. redeeming something means there's a price that has to be paid for it so I can get it. It has to be bought back. And what that word is talking about is by his death on the cross, Jesus has paid the price to buy you back 
for God, for himself, and for God. And you are redeemed. My friend, the price is paid. Your sin has been nailed to the cross, and your sin, which began with Adam, has been now redeemed and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And lastly, he says, yeah, amen. In verse 25, but now by the shed blood of Jesus, my sin debt is paid. He uses that word propitiation. Propitiation means it's an action that appeases a God or a spirit for something that's been wrong or done wrong. That's a big word. But think of it this way. This is really cool because this word is only used a couple of times in the New Testament. And it actually, it's talking about, it's, it's leading them to think back. Remember, they're talking about the law. In the Old Testament, in the temple, there was a veil, a huge veil. And behind the veil was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the only one who could go behind that veil was the high priest one time a year. And he went behind that veil with a, a spotless lamb on the Day of Atonement to sacrifice the lamb so that the sins of the Jewish people could be atoned for for that year. And when he sacrificed that lamb, he poured the blood of that lamb onto what's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, because it represented the mercy of God. When Paul here says propitiation, what he's saying is, for those of you that know the law, Jesus became the mercy seat. There's no need for that anymore. His blood was shed and he is the mercy seat and that pays for your sin and God is going to show mercy on you and the only way that that is available to you is not under the law but by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone to be your savior, the Lord, the leader of your life. Now, man, I got to tell you folks, as we, as we kind of wrap this up today, um, as you go past that point in the scripture, it says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In the Old Testament, God passed over, forgave many sins because of his, his agreement, his covenant with the Jews. But this is the fulfillment is what the last part of this scripture is saying. What I'm talking to you now is the fulfillment of the law. It's what you've been waiting for. The law can't justify you, but Jesus has fulfilled the law. You don't need the law anymore, and he is your way to God, and that's what you have to know. Now listen, as we, as we get to the end of the sermon, here's how it affects you. I don't care what church you go to, North Phoenix, whatever. I don't care how many rituals you take part in. And I don't care how good they are. I don't care how many religious rites you participate in. I don't care how many sacraments you keep. Because all of that is what Paul is talking about. There is nothing in our relationship with God that is related to what you do to be saved. It is already done by Jesus Christ. And so all of those things, amen, all of those things can be great if you understand the only way I know Jesus Christ, the only way I have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. And that's an act of my own heart and will where I say, God, I know I am broken and unrighteous. Man, I know that. But I believe you are God. 
I believe you love me and you forgive me. And I don't understand all this really yet, but man, I think it's true. And I want you to be, you can say, I want you to be my propitiation. And God will say, you don't have to use that word, all right? Because <laughs> he knows what it is. So as we get ready to, to, to give an invitation today, where are you? Where am I? Think back about what I've shared out of the word. Did you identify with the they's and them's? Did you say, man, that's me. I've not, I don't know church. I don't know religion. I don't know any of that stuff, but I've, I've, I've experienced some of that stuff. Or I have a feeling that many of us in this room are the you's. Man, I'm good at judging others. I'm good at seeing those who commit adultery and those who dis, do this wrong, those who uh, lie, those who cheat. I'm good at pointing them out, but the word says that when I do that, I have to realize that's me too. So, are you one of the you's? And in case we're at the point where you're saying, I'm not either one of those, then you're one of the all's. Because we all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God outside of Jesus Christ. So friends, um, Beth and the team are going to come. And this morning, I don't pretend, pretend to be gifted like Pastor Noe. He is one of the most gifted evangelists I've ever seen. God has his hand on him when he preaches and the anointing falls on him and people understand the conviction that God has brought into their life. The spirit just moves. But this morning, I'm praying that the word has spoken to the hearts. It's the spirit of the word that speaks to your heart. And if you're here saying, I am one of those and I don't know Jesus, I've never trusted him. I hope I haven't said anything this morning that's confused you because there was a lot there. But the bottom line is, in your unrighteousness, Jesus will make you clean. Jesus can make you whole. Jesus can help you.